Hi, welcome back to my podcast. This is AC Seifert, and this is episode two, Cuvier and the Science of Rationalization. In the last episode, we talked about Indienne and the economy of slavery, and how the motivations of Europeans for rejecting slavery in America were far from pure. In this episode, we'll talk about the lasting effects of the formalization of botany and taxonomy, and the compulsion of classification and ownership that underscores politics and science in the long 19th century. A brief forward linking to episode one. We talked about Voltaire the last time and Candide, and this time we're going to talk about another work that's called in English the Huron. From Voltaire on, we can see springing forward an entire genealogy of writers that are navigating a line of abolition coupled with an increasingly more science-based way of looking at race. There is still in Voltaire something of the cannibals of Montaigne. It's not that the Native American who is the hero of the Huron, it, it's not that he is a simpleton or that he's incapable of understanding a world around him. It's that the European world he ends up in is completely nonsensical, and it seems to be the only one able to reveal that nonsense. In the long 19th century, the tradition of the good savage, quote-unquote, um, that this book belongs to progressively disappears. And don't get me wrong, there is a good bit of exoticization in the heron that Voltaire describes, and that also has bad and long-lasting effects. You want a good contemporary example of this? Um, look no further than the Marie Kondo phenomenon. On the one hand, you have the racist. So no, not everyone who is anti-minimalist is an awful racist. And in fact, we need to recognize the racial issues of the minimalist movement in the US. So being anti-minimalism, anti-tiny house, often means also being anti-racist in the U.S. because the tiny house movement has a race issue. But there is also a large portion of the reactions to Marie Kondo that are markedly anti-Asian. On the polar opposite, the positive reception of Kondoization often falls into the pitfalls of exoticization. Kondo is accepted and loaded precisely because she's an Asian woman, and it's not difficult to see the link between her success and the problematic representation of Buddhism as a religion of, as a religion of light and peace, for example. I'm not going to overextend myself on the Buddhism issue because I am not a professor of religion, but there is a long-standing issue here of representing anything that comes from Asia as a one-dimensional um, thing as an exotic uh, thing and we see this in Marikondo we see it in Buddhism as a religion of light and peace for example which is ironic um, at the same time as there is the Roginia genocide going on uh, of which of course uh, Buddhism is an essential element as a force of nationalism in Burma but the point here is that there is a long-standing way of representing the other as an oversimplified, one-dimensional thing. And particularly Asian women, there is a sexualization and fetishization of Asian women that has a long history in European literature. One of its magnus opus in the 19th century is Pierre Loti's Miss Chrysanthemum, a love story between a 
French officer and a Japanese quote-unquote temporary bride purchased while the officer is stationed in Japan. Closer to us, um, in American culture, you can remember the weird and really awful Golden Child in 1986 with Eddie Murphy, uh, which is a mishmash of all possible Orientalist tropes. Uh, these tropes are also precisely why you cannot read the murder of Asian American women by a white man in Texas as just sexist. It comes within a long tradition of seeing Asian women as nothing more than sexual praise for white men. So yes, it's also about racism. Circling back to Marie Kondo, though, um, and the idea of minimalism, this actually makes a good intro, if not wittingly, um, by contrast, to our object of the day, the curio, or more accurately, the cabinet of curiosities, which is the precise opposite of, minimal of minimalism. So let me start here with a good dose of humor to say that the cabinet of curiosity is to, to the history of science what my podcast is to history. It collects a, a little bit of everything and shows a bit of everything that will be. I also really enjoy the idea of calling um, cabinets of curiosities by their German name, Hunderkammer or Kantzkammer, and I apologize for my German accent, uh, because there really are cabinets of wonder. There are cabinets of curiosities all over Europe in the early modern era. In fact, um, some of them actually date to the late Middle Ages. Um, and there are significant collections that are being amassed in every parts of Europe. Um, and for example, in Italy. The curiosity cabinet appellation means indifferently the actual cabinet, with, of which you see numerous depictions in 17th century paintings or an entire room. A good number of these bigger collections are actually the basis of uh, natural museum histories in Europe, um, including the Museum of Natural History of my hometown, Strasbourg, which was founded on the collection of 18th century botanists Johannes Ehrmann, uh, Chair of Chemistry at the University of Strasbourg, and then Professor of Botany and Material Medica, which is roughly the equivalent of pharmacy. Hermann's collection included 18,000 volumes, concerning botany and the natural sciences, and over 1,500 animal specimens and thousands of dried plants and insects. Animal specimens range from narwhals tussles to skeletons of monkeys, from fossils to taxidermic wonders like a moonfish, or my favorite when I was little, a pufferfish. These cabinets often went hand-in-hand hand with botanical gardens, either preceding them or succeeding them. Uh, in the case of Strasbourg, the botanical garden where Hermann worked is the second oldest in France after Montpellier's was actually opened in the 17th century, well before Hermann started collecting um, his um, cabinet of curiosities. Uh, but Hermann started his cabinet of curiosities precisely because he loved the botanical garden. These cabinets interest me both because they are revealing in their process and because they're just fun things to think about. Uh, the Cabinet of Curiosities evokes the same movement that Roland Barthes uh, described in The Nautilus and the Drunken Boat. Uh, the essay is part of his book, Mythologies, which is a series of lectures, actually. Um, and they catalog the foundational myth of French culture. In the essay, he evokes both Jules Verne's mythical submarine, the Nautilus, and Rimbaud's boat uh, from the eponymous poem, 
the eponymous poem written uh, by Rimbaud after he'd read uh, one of Jules Verne's books. About Verne's book, Roland Barthes says the same thing that I'll say about the Cabinet of Curiosities. It shows the upper classes all that can be possessed in the world, all that they can hold in their cupped hand. There is a great caricature of Verne, published on the cover of L'Eclipse in the late 19th century, that shows Jules Verne with a miniature theater between his legs and turning the world on a spit to show it to a mysterious audience. There's this idea of showing the world through his books. This is the role of his work and, to some extent, the role of the Cabinet of Curiosities. As a 19th centurist, of course, it's hard to not primarily see the Cabinet of Curiosities as a predecessor and extension of colonial politics, of course, especially in a cultural context where naming is owning. Remember Genesis? When Adam is given preeminence on everything on Earth along with the power to name animals? The naming of animals is, an, of course, singular to Judeo-Christian tradition. There is the same thing of naming animals in several other uh, religions uh, and several other traditions. For example, in Odenoshonin tradition, um, there is this idea of naming animals. The difference, though, is that in Odenoshonin tradition, it is the creator who names, whereas in the Bible, it is the created, Adam, who names. And there is a pretty explicit mention in the Bible, too, of dominion and domination over the animals. Whereas in Odinoshini tradition, there is a clear idea of collaboration. So the Cabinet of Curiosities proceeds from the same impulse of naming and owning. And it's interesting to see that it's doubled up with a quite lucrative business in both forgery and procurement, which often admittedly go hand in hand. Some of these cabinets include art, the natural world, and dozens of other things. When eventually fossils are identified formally, there is a whole market for their resale, as you can see in the recent Aminit movie, for example. There is a whole market of fakes, too. Um, so I know that some of my listeners are specialists in medieval studies, and they're probably familiar with the concept of fake relics of Jesus and saints, which have existed since the beginning of Christianity, basically. But there is also a steady market for fake beasts, one for fake mummies, and one for fake African masks. Uh, the later is, in fact, so steady that most museums today will not risk authentication of African masks of dubious origins because they can't trace them for sure to the eras they're supposed to come from. And I'd like to give a quick note, nod here to Aaron Fletcher and Tammy Wallace, the director and associate director of Ohio Wesleyan's Museum of Art, uh, who actually are the people who put me onto the story of intensive forgery of masks and other things and how it started in the Middle Ages and was thriving in the 18th, 19th century. There's a whole market of fake mummies, mostly dead cats, because starting in the Middle Ages, there is a gamut of illnesses that pseudo-doctors think that can be cured with powdered mummies. But also, you know, because having a mummy is actually a great addition to any cabinet of curiosities in the greater sense. I, I mean, who doesn't want to have a dried up cat on their shelves? 
um, if you've ever wondered, by the way, what happened to the minor kings and aristocrats of Egypt and their mummies, I regret to tell you that they probably ended up dusted, mixed with human fat and herbs for an unguent meant to solve things like, for example, erectile dysfunction. Yeah, I know. There is a whole tradition of cannibalism in Europe, which is weird because we associate cannibalism with people of color in European tradition and particularly in travel journals. But there is a whole tradition of ritual cannibalism in Europe and medical cannibalism. So how is this linked to the idea of our representation of the other changing in the 18th century and 19th century? Franck Lestringant, who is a specialist of travel journals in the 16th century, speaks of this change, and he illustrates it with two scenes that are culled from French literature. One is, of course, the discussion between Montaigne and natives in Rouen in the 16th century. I think Montaigne is probably unavoidable if you work on cannibals and the representation of Native Americans in French literature. And the other one is a private peep show that Balzac attends in the 19th century. Montaigne describes the natives as fully human. But in Balzac's description, the women are barely more than grunting animals whose exposed breast would attempt to have sex with him, um, as he is both aroused and afraid. So I'll underline that L'Estrangon is much too positive, in, for my taste, about the early modern period. There is a significant part of Europe's upper and or educated, educated classes in the 16th century that sees natives as less than human. There's another part that doesn't much care whether they're human or not. And there's another part that cares but would like to save them only to convert them to Christianism. I mean, yes, if you take Columbus and Hitler as the low bars in how white Europeans treat marginalized communities across the globe, then I guess, yes, everyone who doesn't yell murder at first sight is a saint. I don't think there is a major shift between the 16th and the 19th century in how we globally in the West answer the question that Lévi-Strauss asked, which is, can we be travelers without being destroyers? And I don't think there is a major shift in the answer to that question between the 16th and the, and the 19th century. I'll point out that that period of time is the period of time of the various um, slaughters of natives, Native Americans and the genocide of Native Americans. So I don't think there is a major shift. There is, however, a major shift in how this knowledge of the other is packaged. In the travel journal that he writes, Jean de Léry describes involuntary, involuntary movements and convulsions as demonic possessions. And it's interesting. Here's a funny story. In 2017, when I was teaching this text at Cornell, Cornell University, for a writing seminar, my students' primary reading of Léry was in terms of pathologizing the body. These are sick people, a student said. And it's significant that it was expressed in this way. Even though it's also interesting to underline that in France and the US, requests for exorcism in both Christian and Muslim populations are actually right now in a huge boom. Back in the early 2000s, the Catholic Church had 15 priests left in the US who could perform exorcism. And it was actually winding down its operation in that sector. 
But according to The Atlantic, it now has 100 priests ready to perform exorcism, and it's actually a huge demand every year. At the same time, the idea of faith in God is actually slightly disappearing from American society. Yes, yes, even with the overbearing evangelical vote, churches are emptying. But Americans are more numerous every year in believing in the idea of the devil. And so are French people, by the way. Neither the time nor the place, but it's interesting. Right now, what concerns us is this idea of the scientific scientificization of race and the permeability of art to the specialization of the other. That becomes especially poignant once the medium of photography and film start exploding on the scene. I mean, the fact that there is a porous limit between art and science is a long history in European culture. Notwithstanding the current situation of the arts and humanities in regards to STEM in higher education, I was always fascinated as a child by the wood sculptures of the Musée de l'Oeuvre Notre-Dame in Strasbourg, France. Amongst its collection, um, there is a series of busts uh, by several medieval sculptors representing leaning men. The two main artists that I'm thinking about here are local men, Nicolas de Lède and Nicolas de Agneau. This bust represent feelings and deformities, and they bear a striking resemblance to Charcot's representations of his patients. I think this might be where I picked up my fascination for the tenuous limits between science and art. And I'm not just talking here about a scientist doing a sketch. Now I'm talking here about a way in which science inserts itself in the daily entertainment, but also in the very fabric of how the spectacular is conceived of. The figure of, a, of the scientist, of course, also has a place in here through the question of the representation of the mad scientist. For me, the definitive figures of medicine and science in the long 19th century are Jules Verne's Nemo and Professor Schultz from The Begum's Fortune, Les 500 Millions de la Begum, in French. Um, and in the UK, I'd say Professor Moriarty, probably. Although pop culture would probably answer with Marichelle as Frankenstein and Errol Stevenson, Dr. Jekyll as well. Moriarty and Jekyll are more relevant to American culture and are still a strong trope in it. There's a brilliant episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, for example, where a holographic version of Moriarty takes hostage the Enterprise. And there is a notable Star Trek Voyager episode, Darkling, where the holographic doctor's program overloads and makes him transform into a Mr. Hyde of sorts. Behind the disquieting figure of the mad scientist, there is a really disquieting process and a separation from reality. Scientists are human, and their education is the one of society. And in the long 19th century, that discourse of science rejoins the public health through the concerns and the imperialism of the European bourgeoisie in a way that is too often glossed over as a few bad apples. No, it's not a few bad apples. It is a systemic change in the West's relationship to the world that's supported by science in a way that's never been seen before. And here enters Georges Cuvier. Cuvier is born in August 1769 in Montbéliard. 
in a Protestant family. At the time Cuvier is born, Montbéliard is part of the Württemberg Duchy. Um, coincidentally, Therese Benson, whom I mentioned in episode one, is the daughter of the Duchy's ambassador to France. Cuvier studies in Stuttgart, but ends up in Paris in the same way most young men end up there at the time. In 1795, he joins the constellation of scientists hanging around town with a lot of ambition in his luggage. Here, I need to slip in a word about science and the French Revolution, because the French Revolution formalizes a link between power and science through the Grandes Écoles, for example, in a way that's very different from previous iterations. The French Revolution isn't the first to think science in terms of its relationship to power, but because there is a lot happening on the continent at the time, including wars involving France and, well, pretty much every other European country, science takes a decisive part in the revolution, particularly when a European blockade is imposed. Through the work of the Comité Scientifique, the Scientific Committee, scientists turn out in France inventions in what I would argue is perhaps the first more formalized, organized Western military industrial complex. The European blockade meant to start France made a number of everyday objects no longer accessible. Everything was scarce, from potassium, uh, at the time the big Norsest mines in France have not yet been discovered, so everything from potassium to sulfur is scarce. Cannons were manufactured in Spain at the moment when the French Revolution explodes, and so they are no longer accessible to French revolutionaries. Leather, made in Italy and Spain, ink, cane sugar, lead for pencils, all of this suddenly become rare. Statues of saints are smelt to get ore for the cannons. A number of Joan of Arc statues actually disappeared this way during the period. Walls are scraped for various chemicals. And because the soldiers' feet are bleeding in wooden clogs, the French scientific committee figures out a way to reduce tanning from several weeks to only a few. Necessity is the mother of all virtues, as we say in French. There is a flurry of activity that prompts comical scenes. The first cannon that to, come as, to come off the lines of production for this war effort is tested in the Jardin du Luxembourg, and one of its bullets crashes through one of the windows of the Luxembourg Palace, interrupting a parliamentary session. Some of the preeminent scientists working for the revolution are familiar to the listener, I'm sure. Nicolas-Jacques Comté, for example, yes, the Comté, pencil guy, he invents a way to cook coal to make pencils without lead. Others are more obscure. Fourcroix, who pushed for the creation of um, the engineering schools in France before and during the French Revolution. Cassini, um, not the Cassini that you're thinking about. His great-grandson, Cassini IV, who drew the first really accurate map of France its publication ended in 1793, and its accuracy helped the revolutionary army considerably. Le François de Lalande, creator alongside Abbé Grégoire of the Bureau des Longitudes, one of the oldest international institutions, or Chappe, 
inventor of a telegraph system that allows Paris to communicate with the provinces. A test run on the Paris-Strasbourg line makes it possible to send a message from the border city to Paris in less than seven minutes in 1794. The system actually will long be helpful in France. It's only abandoned in 1855 after the invention of the Morse telegraph, and mainly because its visual system is not reliable on rainy days, and there are a lot of rainy days in France. Cuvier comes to Paris on the hill of one of the most interesting period of history for French science. I also think that he embodies to some extent what Max Weber calls the Protestant ethics of capitalism. When Weber was writing about the Protestants of Mulhouse, a city near Montbéliard in particular, he argued that A, the success the city sees in the long 19th century, first with Indienne, then with potassium mining, is largely due to its Protestant population. And B, Protestants at large are behind the emergence of capitalism as a successful model. I don't want to rehash Weber in all of the ways in which he's right and wrong, but there is an interesting link between morality and moral language and work in his, um, in his extensive thinking about capitalism. And it's fascinating because that continues the undercurrent that I already highlighted in episode one. Weber insists that Protestantism values the idea of work and hard work as a moral calling, as an act of holiness, and to some extent of cleanliness in the spiritual meaning towards God. It's much more complex than this, of course, but broadly, it certainly strikes me as interesting that the idea of a calling of, one, of one's work overlaps with this idea of unemployment as a form of laziness. And the idea of zealous work overlaps with a readiness for God that has something to do with the cleanliness of not only the mind, but also the body. So Cuvier comes to Paris and rapidly becomes extremely successful. He arrives in Paris in 1795, when he's just shy above 25. In 1796, he gives his first major lecture. In 1799, he becomes professor of natural history at the Collège de France. In 1802, he replaces his mentor, Jean-Claude Mertru, at the leadership of the Jardin des Plantes, the Botanical Garden of Paris, and in the same year, he's created the first chair of compared anatomy in France. I am harping on him here as a major figure because he is a major figure as a scientist, but also because he's extremely well-connected. And I refer to you um, the work that Dorinda Outram has done, although she's much more sympathetic to Cuvier than I probably am, yeah, I'm going to guess. He's also in constant contact with figures that I've already spoken of, like Geoffroy Saint-Hilaire. Remember the guy from episode one who was in one of the morality councils of Paris. Cuvier used comparison to reconstruct dinosaur and prehistoric fossils like the mammoth, and using compared anatomy integrated fossils along the living realm. His work in comparative anatomy soon finds multiple applications in human anatomy and paleoanthropology. His work is based on finding comparisons and commonalities, and there is a certain continuity here between his work and the Cabinet of Curiosities in that he tries to be expansive and encompassing, and if there is a work of, lab of labeling 
it's not interested in making hierarchies at first. Buffon, on the other hand, for example, has this notion of degeneration in his work, and it's not hard for him to jump to the idea of degeneration in humans, of course. Uh, for a side anecdote, I'll say that Thomas Jefferson was apparently so enraged, according to popular lore, by Buffon's declaration that American species were degenerated and that nothing could grow as strong as European fauna and flora on the continent, that he, Jefferson, had soldiers look for a moose to send to Buffon as a proof that no, son of a gun, we don't have weak fauna here, this is America. But Cuvier isn't as easy to discern as moving in that direction until a little bit later in his career. And there is a huge aspect, in my opinion, that's dependent upon his political saviness here. Cuvier has a big-time political career across several regimes, which he survives, which in itself is surprising. I gotta remind my audience here that, for example, Lavoisier, despite leading the scientific committee during the French during part of the French Revolution, actually ends up dead. So there's always a risk here. And Cuvier not only makes it, but he traverses three different regime changes um, and gets kudos in every single one of them. And he comes to conceive of this, this position, this political position, as one that has a need to arbitrate some notions that are not normally in science, but that become parts of, part of science. And thus Cuvier, who is, it has to be underlined, one of the few scientists of his time who becomes wealthy throughout his career. Uh, Lamarck, for example, was born and poor and died poor, by contrast. Cuvier becomes, through the idea of comparative anatomy, the father of racialization. The sort of science that possesses the inferiority of some ethnicities because of traits like pronounced prognatism, size of skull, and so on. It uses the worst possible um, side of compared anatomy to create hierarchies. And here I need to take a minute to explain to you the extent to which this is bonkers. Prognatism is the projection of your skull compared to the base plan formed by your eyes and nose. Basically, if you could visualize your, front, your skull in front of you, looking at it sideways, I know this is weird, but bear with me. Prognatism is how advanced your lower face is compared to the flat plane that you would rest on your eyes and nose cavity. In earlier humans, this is very big and the angle between the chin and the flat plane is pretty much a triangle as the chin juts out. In Homo sapiens, basically us, it's almost flat. It's a consequence of a number of things. One is the upright walk, which realigns our spine and thus our skulls. And two, the discovery of fire, which makes mastication easier and negates the need for huge tendons and muscles in the cheeks, attached to the cheekbones. I'm oversimplifying this because the process is a consequence of a myriad of other things. But the point is, there is a very linear and simplistic mode of thinking among scientists of the long 19th century. Anyone whose face is flat is superior. And somehow the scientists discover that white men have flatter faces than anyone else. Which, you know, is interesting considering one of the instances of genetic prognatism is called the Habsburg Joe because of its preeminence amongst men of the Habsburg dynasty. 
using pragmatism alongside skull circumference measurements, which we now know is a terrible metric of intelligence, this scientist posit that black men are inferior because their skull is supposedly on average smaller. First of all, it's amazing how neatly the data fits the pre-existing theory. And second of all, I'd like to remind the audience that Albert Einstein's brain was 170 grams less heavy than the average human adult brain. It clocked at 1,230 grams, which again is a full 170 grams less than the average human adult. However, as we now know, density of neurons and complexity of brain folds and ratio of size through um, slash weight of brain are far better predicator of intelligence. Cuvier's observations of the face and skulls of black men leads him to think they are inferior. It's not just that he embraces rational theories as a byproduct of his ascent to power. No, no, no. He creates them willingly and sells them well sell in his books. Here's how Cuvier talks about black people in his book Le Règne Animal, published in 1817. Cette race est confinée au midi de l'Atlas, son teint est noir, ses cheveux crépus, son crâne comprimé, son nez écrasé. Son, musée, son museau saillant et ses grosses lèvres la rapprochent manifestement des singes. Les peuplades qui la composent sont toujours restées barbares. This race is confined to the sus of the Atlas, its skin black, its hair kinky, its skull compressed and its nose flattened. Its salient snout and big lips manifest its closeness to apes. The peoples that makes this race are still barbarous. Note that Cuvier speaks here of snout, which is precisely the trait that the nascent paleoanthropology says disappears when we evolve from our ancestors to modern mankind. There is a clear marking here of black populations as animals. But almost as damaging, they're referred to as anti-historical or ahistorical. It's a discourse that traverses the view of blackness in Europe before and after Cuvier. He's not unique in this. He just lends to this the patina of his new science, compared anatomy. Amongst others, just a couple of examples of this idea of a ahistorical American native and or black populations, because of course this nation extends to Native Americans and black slaves um, in the Americas. Olympe Edouard is a French feminist who crosses the US in 1868 by rail. And she's the first woman to do so for good reason because the transcontinental connection is only completed in 1868-1869. She writes about it in a book called A Travers le Far West. Of the 400 or so pages that this travel journal counts, only less than 100 are occupied by um, talking about the natives. And that's continuing a long digression on Hindus, where she explains to us that the later are a beautiful civilization with their own language and wonderful culture, while natives are only the vestiges of a civilization. Here's a description she makes of a native. And tr the translation is mine because there is no English version of this travel journal. The frontal bone has in them an animalistic depression. Their face is square, flat. Their nose is stout. 
their jaws is so prominent it scares the observer because one can easily imagine what carnivorous instincts accompany these instruments. They are truly a dead civilization that has looped back to its savage beginnings. Sounds familiar? Yup, Cuvier. Note that the lack of abstraction is a long-standing attitude of the Westerner confronted with Native Americans. Jean Delery, and I apologize to my friends who love him, Jean Delery already casually denotes the lack of abstraction in Native Americans' minds when he describes their way of speaking about numbers, or when he reproduces their instances of pseudo-direct speech. But the difference between Léry and Audouard is A. In Léry, the natives have a certain humanity, which Lestrangon shows is highlighted in how they laugh at and whiz Léry when he thinks they're going to eat him, the famous incident of the foot, um, in which the natives bring him a foot and he strongly thinks he's going to be eaten, but they're actually making fun of him. And B., this way of seeing the natives as brutes is not backed by science in Larry, and so the reading is much less closed. Larry moves in a radically different direction than Audouard. He compares cannibals and Catholics and ends up with the conclusion that you can see percolate in the heron, that it is in fact as fellow Europeans that are not human, that are crazy. Through the, big, the backing of science, though, Audouard invokes the opposite conclusion that cannibals are lesser than human, and Mormons, the second big subject of her book, are actually not that bad. Fast forward a few centuries, and you have the speech given by Nicolas Sarkozy in Dakar in 2007. The speech actually starts, sort of starts well. We've got to recognize it. It highlights the many crimes of Europe toward Africa but is derailed very quickly by the fact that Sarkozy constantly says there has been some crimes, as if no one was responsible for those crimes, but bad luck. It reminds me, by the way, of the way the Caen World War II memorial speaks about the Holocaust. Up until the very last part of the memorial, in which uh, the actual Holocaust and the mechanics of the deportations are spoken about, up until that moment, Every sentence is written in the active voice. The French did this, the Americans did that. And then suddenly when you get to the Holocaust, the Jews are deported. Because we all know they jump into the wagons to Auschwitz by themselves. The same process happens here in which no one is responsible for the crimes of Europe. But that doesn't stop there. If it wasn't enough, he hammers it down with Africa's drama is that the African man hasn't entered history. This is why Africans cannot go forward, because they live here historically. Of course, we all know that, right? And it's not the systemic plunder of Africa by Europe. Nope, nope. Got nothing to do with this. Here's the thing. Again, this is Audouard, 250 years or so before that Sarkozy's pitch. Natives are of a span civilization that, having gone around in a circle, has come back to its empty beginning. Now, you tell me how in 2007 a French president can say this and not immediately be ridiculed to death. And that neat trick is in good part thanks to my man, Cuvier, who legitimized white supremacy in science. He becomes more formally involved in racialism, in racialism was a series of racial studies at the beginning of the 19th century. The one, for instance, who examines Sartre Bartman, the poor, authentic woman who's caged like an animal and shown around Europe. 
Cuvier has Bartman taken to the Jardin des Plantes in, in the 1810s, and at this point there is a strong suspicion that she's been the victim of multiple sexual assaults, and she's malnourished and bitten regularly. Cuvier has long sessions with her, long discussions, um, and also has her drawn extensively. He describes her sexual organs as overdeveloped, which is the source of the stereotype on the subject and the corresponding description of supposedly the sexual frenzy in, in African women that we see in Bazak, um, the passage that I cited earlier. After her death, he's the one who dissects her body and has a body cast made, and he orders her remains to be um, embalmed. By the way, her, fr the, her remains are only repatriated in 2002, uh, although France stopped displaying them in 1976. Thank goodness. There is a serious amount of elision and selectivity in Curvier's work on Bartman, um, especially in the difference between his actual publications and his daily notes on her. He writes that he's surprised by her vivaciousness, her intelligence, and her conversation. But his descriptions post-mortem attributes them to the principle of monkey see, monkey do. I'd argue that he knows perfectly well what he is doing when he elides the fact that she is actually a bright young woman. He's not the only one who contributes to this, but his power and place make him one of the most amazing in representing Bartman. His disregard for her predicts the way in which scientists all across Europe will experiment on people of color and Jewish people and disabled people. Arguably, the racism of this early biologist, Cuvier is by far not the only one, is a big factor in creating a mental space where doctors feel comfortable doing horrifying things in the name of progress. It's hard to imagine James Marion Smith, for example, without the work of men like Cuvier. The fact that Cuvier's socialization also happens to go primarily through his relationship to other men of power who are implicated in this morality committees, and the fact that it goes also through, this, through his face, offer thus an interesting overview of how systemic the shift is and how it ties into the obsession of cleanliness, of a moral burden that this man perceived. In effect, Cuvier and men like Saint-Hilaire perceived themselves as guarantors of morality against chaos. And Cuvier's work validates the idea of some people being lesser, which then in turn is the justification this men use to do anything to excise the part of society they look at like a doctor looks at a cancer. In a way, it's interesting to me that popular culture perceives cabinets of curiosities as a step in the history of science and not necessarily as a materialistic object, or consider scientists like Cuvier as men of science primarily, and not as humans of their time. They live in a shifting world that contributes to the, to the rise of capitalism, and this economy is based upon the discrimination of some by others. And there is a definite link between Cuvier's work as a marker of the, how there is a massive shift in 19th century.
and how our knowledge of others is packaged. The issue of forgery in Cabinets of Curiosities that I talked about earlier is not just a fun fact. It also evokes a bigger forgery of the white upper classes of Europe and North America. The construction of the idea of race as a biological one. It's an idea that will deprive thousands and millions of people of their liberty and eventually, down the road, link to eugenics in the longer 19th century. I'll end with this, a little bit of a fact of interest. As far as records go, and there is some scientific consensus on this, although there is no way for, to know for sure, Sartie Bartman was born in 1789. Ironic, isn't it? In our next episode, we'll talk about another scientist, Charcot, and another popular object, the camera. So get ready for some codex, mention of photography and travel journals. And yeah, we'll talk also about pornographic postcards and photographs of cadavers, because why not keep it weird? See you next time. Bye.